Driven by excellence, your trusted place for all things logistics and road safety. Today we are honoured to welcome Mark Cartwright. If you're a commercial van driver or operator, you're probably thinking, I know that name. Mark has achieved a 36-year career within road safety and today we will be delving into his experience and asking the important questions around how national highways are working to proactively make our roads safer. Mark, thank you so much for agreeing to join us on today's episode. Can we start with an introduction for our listeners? As I said, many will have worked with you during your long career in road safety. But for those that haven't had the privilege, can you introduce yourself? Talk us through your background and explain what your role is at National Highways. Yeah, absolutely. My name is Mark Cartwright. I head up the Commercial Vehicle Incident Prevention Team at National Highways. I've been around the transport logistics industry most of my working career. I was with the Trade Association, formerly known as FTA, for 32 plus years in a number of different roles there, Logistics UK now. Towards the end of my time there, the last eight, nine years or so, I was doing all the van-related stuff that uh, FTA, as they were at the time, were doing, including the development of their, I have to say, award-winning van excellence mm-hmm. programme, which I then went on to manage. I joined National Highways, or Highways England as it was then, about three years ago now. I've got two roles, basically. I head up their commercial vehicle incident prevention team, as I mentioned. I also uh, look after their Driving for Better Business communications programme. So they actually fit together really, really well. The role of the commercial vehicle incident prevention team is to identify and develop projects, initiatives, call them what you will, looking to improve the single KPI, which we're judged on, which is the number of people who manage to get themselves killed and injured on our roads involving commercial vehicles, HDVs, trucks, and we're looking more and more now into cars and powered two-wheelers that have been driven and ridden for work as well. Drive for Better Business is the comm side of it. That's our communications campaign. Uh, so the two parts fit together really, really well in terms of identifying initiatives and then actually trying to communicate them out to the sharp end where it might actually make a little bit of difference in terms of the uh, the KPI that I mentioned. Within the Commercial Vehicle Incident Prevention Team, I manage a team of project managers. As I say, we're looking for initiatives to develop. Give you a couple of ideas of some of the things that we're, we're looking at at the moment. Probably the best known activity we get involved in is something we call Operation Tramline, which is where we'll and police around the country, one of a, a number of adapted HGV cabs to use as uh, camera platforms basically on the network. We've been running those about five years now, around about 30,000 dangerous occurrences that they've spotted and dealt with out there, so that's very positive. We've done a lot of work in the van space over the years with uh, the development, again, award-winning van mm-hmm. driver toolkit, which is really about trying to take any of the mystique or the old wives' tales, misunderstanding across van operators and van drivers about what they can, can't do, what the law requires, what best practice provides. At the moment, we're doing an awful lot of work around what we uh, internally at least call the known unknowns, which are primarily distraction, fatigue, impairment, medical conditions. Uh, The reality of it is trucks and vans don't crash on their own. There's always human involvement. So it's trying to get our head around that and again, offer good advice to organisations how to best manage it. We've got a terrific project we're working on at the moment, which is around post-collision response. Clearly, plan A is to stop them crashing in the first place. Plan B is, I have crashed, let's try and keep them alive. There's a horrible statistic we've got from our medical colleagues. We're working on this with uh, the 80% of the pre-hospital deaths from road collisions, I reckon, could have been averted with some fairly basic first aid on the scene before the paramedics arrive. We've got a terrifically badly named project, which we call Ping, which is about using some of the cameras and sensors on our network to let opted in operators know what we've spotted their vehicles up to when they're around the corner out of sight with a view for them sorting the issues out themselves. But 
the main role that I was brought into uh, at Highways is to try and develop us as a trusted voice within the transport and logistics industry and it's probably completely the wrong way of putting it, but my role is basically to be the front man for all of the massive amounts of work we've got going on behind the scenes within the commercial vehicle incident prevention team and the driver for better business team. That sounds expansive. Thank you for sharing that. Let us start by dispelling any misinterpretation. Often when our trainers at PDT Fleet are out delivering sessions, we're asked by our drivers, who owns National Highways and how are they funded? Can you share with us that background with National Highways? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you own National Highways, the taxpayer owns National Highways. If you want to get technical, we're an executive non-departmental public body sponsored by DFT, Department for Transport. Basically, we're an at-arms-length government body, so everything that we do is funded by the taxpayer, which equally means everything that we do and we offer out to organisations is all FOC because it's already been paid for. We were Highways England up until a couple of years ago, and before that we were a proper government body when we were known as Highways Agency. Currently, we have a single stakeholder, which is whoever the uh, current Minister for State is for Transport. And our licence is really straightforward from DFT. It's to operate, maintain and improve motorways and the major A roads in England, although we do reach into Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales, where we help set some of the standards that they work to. We're responsible for 4,300 miles of motorways and what we call all-purpose trunk roads. You'll thank me for that if it comes up in a pub quiz. (laughs) Uh, And they carry about a third of all traffic in England. But interestingly for our listeners, uh, over two-thirds of all the freight that's moved is carried on our network. We're funded directly from government on a five-year road investment cycle. The last award was from 2023 to 2025, and it's an awful lot of money. It was 27.4 billion, of which I get a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit (laughs) to try and spend on what we're up to. That's amazing. I think you explained that really clearly for our listeners, but from your perspective, which projects within National Highways have brought the most success, the ones where you and your team have sat back and thought, we've really made a difference there? Yeah, I mentioned Tramline earlier, which is where we lend the police uh, an undisclosed number of modified HGV cabs. There's somewhere between two and four of them. They're modified in so much as the speed limiters are removed. They will do 80-odd mile an hour, which is is quite an experience if we need to. They've got 360-degree high-resolution enforcement standard cameras on them. Uh, And as I say earlier, they've they've identified quite a number. So that's the one that gets Mm -hmm. all the high profile. We're very proud of that one. There's a couple of myths attached to Tramline, which I'll just take the opportunity just to knock down, bearing in mind our audience, is they're not out there trying to identify HDV drivers in particular. You can't get over the fact that the police in the vehicle are 10 foot up in the air so they can see what's mm-hmm. going on in other HDV cabs. But in terms of the issues that they identify, it's broadly about 40% HDV, about 30% van and about 30% car. Most common issues that we find are... Really simple, really straightforward, but really dangerous. It's people not wearing the seatbelts. A statistic which plays into that is about one in four of people that die in incidents on our road weren't wearing seatbelts at the time of the incident. So clearly that's a major, major issue. And the other one, your listeners would probably guess, it's mobile phone distraction. Mm -hmm. I guess one that's made, I think, a lot of difference in a particular area of operations is our van driver toolkit. Again, very extensive set of resources trying to take away some of the 
confusion or old wives tale the myths about operating vans driving vans that's been exposed now to around about 5,000 separate companies who've downloaded the materials those companies between them we've got somewhere in the region of a, a million and a half van drivers between them so it's starting to get a, a, an awful lot of traction in there and I'm also really excited about the potential of some of the projects that we're working on uh, Ping I've already mentioned which is where we let people know what we're spotting their vehicles up to and I deliberately say vehicles because we don't know who's driving it we know where and when the incident was identified will provide evidence to the organisation they can work out who was driving the vehicle and, and take the appropriate actions the post-collision trauma response I think has got massive opportunity for improving uh, what were um, if you like the outcome uh, of incidents on our network there's three main areas to it just to give a little bit of a more of a background to it. Number one is helping the first people who come across the scene of an incident make the best 999 call anybody's ever mm -hmm. made. Our colleagues in the blue light call centres tell us probably 50 odd percent of the people that call don't actually know where they are at the time that they're calling, which is all adding to the response time. It's then around if the individual chooses to stay at the scene and we're not trying to force anybody to do anything. Uh, they wouldn't ordinarily want to do, we're just trying to get them better at doing it. If they're going to hang in around the scene, a vehicle's going to be somewhere, so let's position the vehicle to protect themselves first of all, protect the scene, and not get in the way of anything else that's going on out there to cause further risk. And then you get into the medical side of things. We're, we're working with uh, a number of senior paramedics on this. Again, there's a terrible statistic that they will point out to us, is you'll die from a blocked airway in probably three or four minutes. The target time for a paramedic to arrive on scene is about 15, 16 minutes. So you've got time to die three or four times over if that was what you wanted to do. So anything that we can do to improve that, I think, has got to be a bonus for, for anybody out on our network. And there's a massive, I'm hesitant to call it a project because it's difficult to quite nail down exactly what it is, which hopefully will make a degree of sense. It's something we call in the power of procurement and is a real message for the, you know, the business leaders within your audience is... One of the things that fascinates me and terrifies me at probably equal amounts is the number of very health and safety conscious organisations I've come across with very robust systems, very talented health and safety managers and directors who simply don't seem to get that their responsibility extends out onto the road. Mm -hmm. They'll have massively secure premises, they manage their health and safety within their offices, within their production facilities, within their construction sites really well and then you know, almost throw a set of keys at a driver, pat them on the head and wish them the best of luck. Yeah. And if we manage the risk on the roads anywhere near as well as they manage the risk in the premises, we'd be a long way down the line to our, I have to say, very challenging targets of reducing casualties on our network to zero by 2050. So there's a whole piece there around trying to raise the awareness of, of businesses, of their responsibilities, not just within their own workforce, but as that extends out to their supply chain and their contractors, which is, is a very clear legal requirement for health and safety work legislation. That's um, following into a question I wanted to ask you about that, really, because we wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment there. But what are you doing with these organisations? Like you said, have great health and safety organisations, but they don't follow through with their on-road obligations. What do you do to help them with that? We've got a lot of materials available to support them. But I think the biggest thing that we're trying to do, and this might sound a very odd thing to say, bearing in mind your audience, is to stop talking to fleet managers and logistics directors because we want to be talking to health and safety managers, risk managers, procurers within organisations, health and HR departments. What we do find, and it's, it's a, it is a compliment, it's, a, it's a, a testament to how well we manage logistics in this country, so many of the fleets and organisations we deal with, their own fleets are great. Mm. 
but they're not throwing their weight around across their supply chain to be very clear about their expectations. You know, if you take National Highways as an example, we wouldn't let somebody loose building a bridge for us or managing a stress of motorway if we weren't pretty sure of anywhere to build a bridge. <laughs> do we ever ask them the question, do they know how to run their fleet properly? Mm-hmm. Are their contractors running their fleets properly? Right. Probably not as much as we should do. And we see that across other organisations where the main task that business is, is, is brought in for is fantastic, but are they, to be blunt, influencing their supply chains? It's an anecdotal one, but it always makes me smile every time I think about this. As a fleet manager, I know really well that one of the largest fleets in the UK, who ran me up a few months ago, just because I think he wanted somebody to moan at, basically, <laughs> but he ran me up and he said, look, I've just got to share this with you. I've been driving into my office for the first time for ages because of you know COVID and lockdown and all the rest of it. And I managed to get cut up by a van for a fleet management company. He said, so I packed my horn at him just to let him know I was about and the fact that I wasn't that happy. Excuse me, I got the full set of hand signals and I got brake checked three times. Imagine how surprised he was when I reversed into the parking space next to him at the offices where he'd come to do some work. Oh, no. Suffice to say, he doesn't service that office anymore. So we all have a responsibility. We all have ability to influence and actually what we're trying to do with this project is really to get businesses to use their ability and their their influence to make changes. Talking about making a difference I just want to link to an article we read on you where you stated that the sole aim of your team is to keep people alive. When viewing your published targets it states your aim is to reduce the number of people killed or seriously injured by 50% by the end of 2025. Before you answer my next question, I just want to remind our listeners that each day approximately five people are killed and up to 60 will sustain injuries, many of which will be life-changing. So with that in mind and with your target being to save lives, what would you say are the key projects, performance indicators and milestones you set to achieve this? Okay, it's a big big question because it's a big topic. Um, In terms of projects, they all kind of come together. Mm -hmm. There's a a terrible phrase that I learned at some conference somewhere, which is around event horizon. So things all start coming together. If we were using the power of procurement piece, that would be more demanding of everybody within our supply chain. The great majority of vehicles on our network are being driven for work purposes. Uh, I'll just share this with you. We had a a daft idea, not that we have many daft ideas, uh, a while ago. If we suddenly inherited some superhero powers, wouldn't it be interested if we could go out and suddenly freeze, let's say, a mile of busy motorway? Let's go and start knocking on people's windows and ask them why they were there. Were they driving for work? Now, we're pretty good at freezing miles of motorway. What we weren't very good was getting the health and safety forms signed off mm-hmm. to go and start knocking on people's windows. But you get the gist of it. So there's another way of looking at it. And these figures are approximate because I'm not very good at arithmetic, but you'll get the gist of it. I think your listeners will get the gist of it. We know there's about half a million trucks out on our network, they're being driven for work. That's the only reason mm-hmm. they're there. There's about there's more than four and a half million, it's about four point eight million. But let's say four and a half million vans out there, they will be driven for work. So there's five million vehicles we know are being driven for work and are therefore ought to be influenceable through this health and safety angle. There's about a million company cars, and the figure's decreasing, but let's call it a million company cars. And then there's the world of Grey Fleet. Most of your listeners are probably flinching there when we say Grey Fleet, but uh, the world of Grey Fleet, and depending on which estimate you look at there's somewhere between 22 and 10 million grey fleet vehicles in the uk seems a bit of a wide range to me but we just picked on 14 million mm-hmm. just to keep the arithmetic easy so we've got 14 million grey fleet we've got another million company cars that's 15 million and we've got 5 million vans and trucks out there so 20 million vehicles mm-hmm. which rather coincidentally is about half of all the vehicles registered in the uk 
And there's something that we, we've started talking to businesses about. There's another way of describing somebody who drives for work. And that's that an employee. Mm. You wouldn't permit, you wouldn't allow, you wouldn't turn a blind eye to bad behaviours within an office space, within a, a construction facility, within a production facility. So why aren't we having the same rigour on vehicles that are being driven for work and, and company, car, uh, company drivers? Definitely. So that's one of the ones which really we have great ambitions for. But if you start thinking about the post-collision trauma response, mm -hmm. the, the PING project, actually there's no reason why they shouldn't be baked into that requirement of you, for example, as an organisation that wants to come and work for us. If you want to come and work for us, I'm expecting you to commit to good health and safety behaviours and I'm expecting that you sign up for PING and I'm expecting that you sign up for the post-collision trauma response, you get engaged and involved with some of the already existing uh, operational accreditation programmes out there, stuff like FALS, ISO 39001, etc. You know, it's just about raising the standards. So that's one mm. really, in terms of milestones, and ambition, I guess, that we've got the greatest hopes about, but we know it's a really challenging target. Yeah. You mentioned a key project there, post-collision trauma response. Can we delve into this a little bit more? We've seen your campaigning for Ecall SOS. Can you explain to our listeners what the education piece is here? Yeah, it's kind of split into two areas. Ecall is, is, is a given, to be honest, for us. Ecall is very, it's a, a perfect and very clever piece of technology that allows people to identify. And, and one of the challenges that we have, one of the, the, the things that stresses us, for want of a better phrase, is we kind of assume everybody's a good driver. Mm. But the number of people that, you know, we talk to and, and survey work tells us haven't got a first clue what the equal button in their vehicle does. You know, the number of people, uh, we are on a, a, a call a few weeks ago with uh, somebody from the, the scheme talking about this, and I can't remember what the numbers were exactly, but the number of calls that they get where basically it's somebody just pressing the button to see what happens and this voice oh, really? suddenly comes out of it. It's ridiculous. So there's a whole piece there around actually educating drivers as to what their vehicles are capable of, educating them about how the roads work and how they should behave. Because, you know, driving well is a lot more than just pressing pedals and making things go backwards and forwards and round corners. The post-collision trauma response project breaks into three areas fundamentally. Touched on them already. First of all, you've come across the scene of an incident. Let's make the best 999 call anybody's ever made. Be very confident about where you are. Describe the scene in front of you so the right resources are committed quickly and easily. There's all kinds of technology out there we want to bake into this. What three words, for example. Uh, there's another app, which I, forgive me, I can't remember the name of at the moment, which allows the emergency call centre to use a camera on your phone so you can actually send them videos of what's in front of you. I think that's going to get even more challenging as more and more electric vehicles come onto the road as well because the emergency services do need to know if at all possible that there are emergency ve uh, electric vehicles involved in, in, in incidents out there. Once a call has been made, as I say, we're not trying to coerce or force people into doing stuff they wouldn't ordinarily be thinking of doing. We just want to make them better equipped to do it. If they're going to be around the scene, you know, Let's do what you can to make yourself safe. Keep the scene safe and protect the scene. A lot of our drivers clearly are in HGVs. They're obviously, for their, because of their size, terrific for protecting scenes. One in ten vehicles, more than one in ten vehicles on our roads are, are vans. So if there is an incident, there's likely to be a few vans turn up fairly quickly. They're pretty good. A lot of them, particularly within the civil engineering industries, have got flashing lights and all sorts of stuff to make the scene very, very visible. So there's all kinds of opportunities there. Then you get into the triage and the first aid piece. The paramedics we, we deal with are, are terrific and 
I guess as most people in those kind of jobs, they've got quite a gallows sense of humour in there. But as I put it to us, there are basically three things we need to get good at at the scene which will keep people alive. Mm-hmm. And if any of your listeners have done first aid, they'll know the, the mantra, it's the quiet ones you need to worry about. If they're screaming off the top of their lungs, they might be in terrible pain, but mm. they're not likely to die in the next 10, 15 minutes while we're waiting for a paramedic to roll up with, a, with, with their gear. And in terms of the quiet ones, the three biggest killers are cardiac issues. So you get straight into the old staying alive routine, if you remember the advert. More and more vehicles we know now are equipped as a matter of course with defibrillators and for your listeners who are thinking of specifying new vehicles at the moment, it's definitely something to think about. You spread the cost over the lifetime of a vehicle, it, it's, it's insignificant. Aside from the cardiac issues, blocked airways, I mentioned earlier, you'll die from blocked airway in three or four minutes and as our paramedic friends put it, you deal with a blocked airway by unblocking it. Mm-hmm. So fingers in, get whatever's in there, get the tongue back out, whatever it is, get stuck in there. The biggest killer bleeds. Mm. So both internal and external, they're not exclusive. You can have both. Internal bleeds, to be blunt, there's not an awful lot they can do about it until they've got the victim to a, a medical centre where they can be imaged and they can work out where they're leaking from. So that makes the first aid, the 999 call, even more important. Even shaving a couple of minutes off the response could make the difference. If it's an external bleed, stick something in it and push. You know, you can buy genuinely military-grade bleed kits for about 15 quid a pop. Is Stick a couple of them in your vehicle, yeah. you'll be able to cope with it. So, bit of triage, go for the quiet ones, look for cardiac issues, look for blocked airways, look for bleeds, and actually an awful lot of the deaths that we see prior to the, the paramedics turn up would probably be okay. It's all about giving the paramedics something to work with. Mm. So, they all kind of fit together quite nicely. Um, the aim for the post-collision trauma response is that we will develop two main things. One is is a suite of e-learning, micro little bite-sized chunks of it covering all of the things we've talked about, the call, the triage, the medical response, and also an app just to guide people through it on the basis you could have had the training a few months ago. You can guarantee your brain's going to get a mush mm. if you come across the scene of it. So if all you remember to do is to fire up the app uh, and it will guide you through your location, making the call, protecting the scene and the first aid elements. So we're hopeful to have something that we can be sharing with your listeners probably by the back end of this year. Um, but we're working really hard on that. We see that it's got massive opportunities. That's really great. We'll look forward to seeing those resources. I just want to pick up on a point that you made you mentioned that emergency services would need to know whether there were electric vehicles in the incident. Why is that? I think the emergency services would prefer to know if mm-hmm. there's electric vehicles in there. And it's really straightforward, to be honest. Electric vehicles probably carrying 50,000 volts. If you stick your hand in the wrong place, you're going to get 50,000 volts. So you're coming across a, a smashed-up electric car, electric van on the network. They need to know what it is that they're dealing with. It's the obvious answer. The lithium-ion batteries that these vehicles are powered by as well also present challenges to the emergency services. If they catch fire, they really do take a hell of a lot of butting out, mm. basically. So it's all about the emergency services getting the right kit to the right place first time not getting there and realizing they needed other kit to deal with it so you know the more they know at the scene the better before they arrive definitely beyond the life-saving work that you do we noted during our research that the scope of national highways is far-reaching and covers biodiversity noise 
air quality, flooding, water quality, carbon emissions, cultural heritage, landscape and environmental legacy. Can you explain to our listeners how these fit into the National Highways strategy? I would love to be able to give you a really involved, long answer for this. It's a bit outside of my remit, but fundamentally it comes with who we are. Mm. Uh, As I mentioned, we are effectively a government body with a major employer with six and a half thousand odd people with the national highways with a major spender i mentioned earlier our typical five-year RIS program is, is in excess of 20 billion pounds so it kind of comes with our responsibilities as who we are so we do have whole teams involved in all of those kind of exercises i always say this slightly tongue-in-cheek but in my time in highways as barely a month goes by without me discovering a whole new department i didn't know existed <laughs> before dealing with these kind of things and we take it really really seriously we do a hell of a lot of archaeology, digging up old things as part of our construction projects, etc. We do an awful lot around the environment and, you know, maintaining habitats for the wildlife that we find along the side of our network. So not something I'm directly involved in, but it's something we do take really seriously. That's really interesting. That really is a wide remit. Mark, some years ago, we at PDT Fleet Training collaborated on the sharing of the smart motorway safety message. Back then, the appetite seemed positive for the impending changes. Now we've read on the government website that these are to be scrapped. What's the rationale behind that decision? <laughs> Did I, a bit above my pay grade, that one, but mm. it's fundamentally a political decision. Mm. You know, there's all kinds of data that we can use to demonstrate that smart motorways are at least no more dangerous than other motorways. A lot of it is around how people understand their, their, how to use them and how to use them properly. It's a political decision at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. What's your personal view on it? I'll come back to where we were. Smart motorways are demonstrably no more dangerous than any other motorways. The part of the challenge is around when motorways start slowing down and congestion starts forming, people leave the motorway. And to be blunt, they tend to crash on the, non, the less safe roads mm. that are around it. If you look at it in overall terms, they're no more dangerous. Will we expect to see any physical changes with the removal of smart motorways? Uh, again, not so far as I'm aware, but below my pay grade. But my understanding is the government's commitment is not to build any more, not to commence the building of any more. Uh, the ones that are in construction will continue to be in construction. The ones that exist aren't suddenly going to disappear in a, in a puff of blue smoke. So, you know, they are, as far as I'm aware, there's no plans to deconstruct the smart motorways that we spent all this time, money and effort constructing, and obviously there'd be an awful lot of impact on network flows if we were doing that. And it's interesting, I mean, one of the things that my team do is we, we, we'll build driver CPC packages and then put them out into the wild for, for training businesses mm-hmm. to pick up on. We've just recently released one about smart motorways, and really genuinely, very first question we got is, do we need to worry about this in light of the the government announcement and yeah of course we do because there's still going to be smart motorways on our network for the foreseeable future the more people understand how they work their responsibilities when they're driving is really important and it's probably worth saying one of the things that causes an awful lot of issues on all of our on all of our roads not the smart motorways are vehicle breakdowns and i say breakdowns through gritted teeth because in my mind at least half of what we get classed as breakdowns on our network aren't breakdowns They've run out of fuel or they've the tires have gone when they never set out onto a network with ooky tires to start with. So anything that can stop people stopping on our networks, whether they're smart motorways or not smart motorways, has got to be for the good. And you know, we did quite a campaign a while ago, some of your listeners 
are probably aware of our Go Left campaign. And that was all about how you deal with stoppages on the network. Is You keep left. If you can get off the motorway at the next junction on the left, you do that. If you can't, you get as far over to the left as you can. You get to the side of the road, you make your visit vehicle as visible as you can. You climb out the left-hand side, you climb over the barrier to your left mm-hmm. before you do anything else. So, you know, the big thing for your listeners is make sure they're doing everything that they can to reduce the risk of any stoppages on the network in terms of how they fuel the vehicle. I know commercial vehicle drivers are, are very good at this kind of stuff. Mm. It's how they, how they approach their journey is probably the most dangerous thing anybody can do, be doing on any one of our roads is stopping. Mm. Mark, this has been a great way to share with our sector all of the fantastic work that's been done to, in essence, keep us all safe. Before we let you go, we would like to pick through your wealth of knowledge and provide our listeners with three takeaways from our session today. Okay. The fleet managers in your audience, take a second and give yourself a pat on the back Hmm. because we're really, really good at this in this country. So the message for fleet managers is be brilliant, keep being brilliant and tell everybody you're brilliant and share your brilliance with all of those around you. So that's number one. In terms of number two, sharing knowledge. I mentioned earlier, one of the big challenges that we have is everybody thinks they're the world's best driver. They know exactly what to do. Is talk to all of your employees, share in your business, whether they're driving for work or not, whether it's the people commuting into your offices, is share best practice with them. Driving is demonstrably the most dangerous thing that most of us will ever do in our lives, yet we take it so much for granted. So talk to your people, share the knowledge with them. You know stuff, you're a, truck, you're a fleet manager involved in the industry. There's a, a project which hasn't quite seen the light of day with us yet. We've been kicking around behind the scenes, something we're calling Ida Tax, which uh, depending on whether you want the pre- or post-watershed, I'll give you the pre-watershed, you can probably work the post-watershed out, but I drive a truck and know stuff. Is Share that knowledge, you know how to maintain your vehicle, you know how to be confident that your vehicle isn't going to break down on route, you know what to do if you come across the scene of an incident or you, your vehicle does break down. Share that knowledge. Share it with not just the people you work with, share it with your family, share it with your peer group, the guys down the pub, whoever. You're a truck driver, you're in the business, you know stuff. And that goes for the fleet managers as well. And then the third one, and I've spoken about this already, but it's the one I will always come back to, is engage with your health and safety colleagues, with your procurement colleagues, with your HR colleagues and recognise the risk on the roads for all of your employees, your supply chain, all of their employees, be a demanding client. If you want to come and work for us, show me that you know what to do when you're out on the network to drive safely and keep us all safe. So that's one, two, three for me is fleet managers be brilliant, share the love and be a demanding client. That's amazing. Thank you so much for joining us here today. If you're keen, we would love to invite you back because we could easily fill up the whole day chatting with you. So thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Driven by Excellence. We hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, please don't forget to click that follow button, leave us a review or share this episode with a colleague. For more information and to keep up to date with industry news, head to our website, pdtfleettrainingsolutions.co.uk. 